0: Welcome to a new episode of Stuff Said, the show where I, Greg Shiegel, a working cartoonist, talk to people in the world of comics, cartooning, and beyond. However you found the show, I thank you for listening to it. Today's today's an interesting one because for the first time ever, I'm recording this intro with someone else in the room, and uh, I, think it, I think it'll be very natural. The person in the room is Jacob Shabbat, who is the second guest I ever had on the show, and he's remaining perfectly quiet. Which is terrific What's also nice is that his name actually comes up In this conversation With my guest Jersey Drozd And you might be wondering Who is Jersey Drozd What's up with that name Is it real Yes that's his real name He's a real person He's a cartoonist and teaching artist And we have a really But we have a great conversation But this is also This show is part of a crossover Because Jersey himself is a podcaster With numerous shows and I appeared on two of them. One is called Comics Are Great. And the other is called The Kids Comics Revolution that he co-hosts with Dave Roman, who was a recent guest on this very show. It's all very incestuous, folks. So just embrace it. We all know each other. That's how it works. We all know each other. We go to meetings. We discuss things. Speaking of discussing things, I discuss a lot of things with Jersey. Jersey is super enthusiastic about comics. He loves comics. And when I talk to him And hopefully you'll get this when you hear us talking The enthusiasm will rub off on you And you will also love comics More than maybe you do right now And if you don't like comics at all I'm amazed you're listening to this And Write me Send me a message and let me know And and I'll tell you how to reach me After the conversation For now, no more from me until later Here's me talking to Josie Drost
1: Okay, because you've got to get the pronunciation right.
0: Do you pronounce it on your show, the Z is sort of like an S.
1: Jersey Drozed?
0: Oh, you do say Drozed.
1: Drozed. Maybe, rhymes with hosed.
0: Maybe because I'm listening at double speed. It really happens so much faster.
1: <laughs> I'd probably slur it because I talk really fast, and I'm sure I slur a lot of things when I do that. So, hi, I'm Jersey Drozed. It probably yes, sounds right. like S. Yeah. All right, so,
0: here's a, so first of all, so your name is unique. But it's not entirely unique. No, it's not. There's a guy making bass guitars.
1: Jersey Joe's basses. Yes. In in Eastern Europe, this my name is very common. It translates roughly to George Thrush. But Jersey is like in, in the Czech Republic, in Russia, in Poland. It's really? a very common name. I only found this out in recent years. And, and as a matter of fact, when I was a kid, I only went by George, which is the translated name, until I had to get my driver's license. And then they said, no, your birth certificate says Jersey. That's your legal name. So I didn't realize I was operating under an alias my whole life. So
0: it, it's Polish?
1: It's Polish, yeah. yeah. I'm 99% Polish and like 1% Russian.
0: Yeah, hard to get a name with that many Zs. Even though it's one, it's in each name. It's not to be Polish. <laughs> Russian and Poles hate vowels. They just hate them. <laughs> my, my last name is spelled uh, terribly. But uh, my family came to the United States from Cuba. And then before that, Eastern Europe. So my grandf- my paternal grandfather's name, before it was spelled the way it is now, is a series of Z's and Y's and C's because he, he came from Poland. So.
1: Either that or the planet where Chewbacca came from.
0: Oh is <laughs> <Chewbacca's> the best. <laughs> I just <laughs>
1: remember when I first saw the name of the planet where Chewbacca's from, which I can't pronounce. I remember. Right, you? I remember thinking
0: like that looks like a lot of my family members' names. I wonder if <laughs> I wonder if I'm related to Chewbacca.
1: <laughs> that would be awesome.
0: So let's go through the resume just really quick of all okay. the things you do. All right. It's probably easier to say you're not a chef. But maybe you are. <laughs> you introduce yourself on your podcast, which we will talk about, as a cartoonist and teaching artist. Mm-hmm. So you're a cartoonist. You're a teacher. You're a comics advocate. Sure. You are a podcaster. Mm-hmm. And you are a convention organizer. Oh, on, yeah. On I guess some so. level. Yeah. Yeah. You're not a retailer. No. Have you ever been a retailer? No. So I you, thought about
1: it. <laughs> I thought about it at one point in my life, but no. Did no. you ever
0: work in a comic shop? No. Okay. So you've avoided that range
1: that's the only place where i haven't infiltrated my myself into comics
0: and yet you self-publish so you technically have sold at least your own books oh yeah yeah
1: and i've worked for publishers and i've done freelance so yeah
0: yeah you've done it all uh that
1: gosh it makes it sound like i am accomplished <laughs> Can we say for the audience that no matter like when you see yourself on paper
0: it always looks really good and then like you think like why don't I feel that good about it, right? Well it goes it goes actually straight to one of the major questions. You've done all this stuff. Uh-huh. But you've done it in some regard on the outskirts. Like I I had never heard of you until I was talking to Dave Roman and I said I'm thinking about doing this podcast, blah blah blah. He says, my friend does a podcast, you should listen to it. Gives me your name and i and i find out that not you didn't do one you were doing like four three or four at the time yeah and then you know i learned that you were you were a, c- a cartoonist and i saw your work and I, oh this guy he, it's not amateur hour <laughs> this guy can actually draw and he can compose a story and he can letter a comic that looks look a lot of amateur comics you could tell from the lettering oh yeah that they're like okay this isn't quite right yeah so you know what you're doing well i appreciate that thank you no problem so is there I mean, we'll get right to it is there a frustration at being somebody who knows what they're doing knows enough that you're teaching classes and teaching people mm-hmm. but you're like hey over here I'm doing hello
1: oh yeah yeah it's, it's always frustrating and you always feel like an outsider I think yes uh, I mean, most people I talk to uh, like people who I look at their lives and I go like man they, they're doing it all right they're making every decision right it's like watching a movie this guy's life you know and then I, I talked to him, and I'm like, oh, yeah, but... And there's and then it's a reminder that there's always grass, always greener, bigger fish, that whole idea. And and Scotty Young said something. I, so I, I talked to Scotty Young on the Comics are Great show, like, last year. And something he said really stuck with me was... And that's why I love doing this show, because I get all these great takeaways. Uh, he said, you know, you have to pretend that what if this is as good as it gets? Because it might be. This might be as good as it gets. You've got to be okay with that. Yes, you press on. But but anyway, so... and. and so yeah, I, I've always, I th- I think like a lot of people, I've always felt like I was on the periphery kind of shouting in, trying to weasel my way in. But at the same time, there's something nice about being able to do it on your own terms. Yeah, I, I worked on a book for Antarctic Press years ago called PPV with Tom Root. And when I finished the miniseries, I wanted to pack it up and send it off to Keith Giffen, who was one of the, my heroes growing up. I was like, I just want to send him a letter saying, Mr. Giffen, I did my first miniseries. I'm really excited about it. I just want you to know, you know? and Tom said to me he's like wouldn't it be better to meet him as a peer? He's like why don't you just work your way through and when you meet him he knows who you are and that's a much better situation than being that guy who's like Mr. Giffen, you know. So I think about that too and I think that uh you know that's kind of why I did things the way I did. Is I wanted to get in ugh, on my own terms, <laughs> I guess. If that's the, if that's the best I can come up with off the top of my head.
0: Well, all right, so we're, we're going to talk about your actual work. Sure. But you know, screaming in to be noticed. Who, who would you, you know, when you first got into this game, you know, you I, I know from research that you you decided when you were eight years old that you wanted to be a comic book artist. Well, then. So, you know, there's a period where you start to figure out, like, what does that even mean? How does that happen? You're reading books and figuring it out. But what was the goal then? Was it, I want to do, like, what was what was the goal right. at the time? Maybe not at the time. Maybe when you were 17. Like, it really became realistic.
1: Right, right, yeah. Because like when you're eight, it's just like, I'm
0: going to make comics yeah. and I grow up and I'm going to eat candy all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But,
1: but by the time I was 17, the goal was, I'm going to do that quintessential run on amazing spider-man that's gonna be it and then i'm gonna be known for doing that special it's gonna be you know insert last name here plus drozed run of spider-man and then and then i'll be set uh, garab sheamus is gonna come over to my house he's gonna he's gonna christen me with a sword you're you're the number one artist this month and that's all uh (laughs) (laughs) and then i went to my first comic-con and started showing samples around and i had that heartbreak and I realized that, well, uh, maybe I don't want to do that so much. because Who broke your heart? I don't remember the guy's name. But it was, it was a series of people saying, like, this sucks, that sucks. And it did. It was really <laughs> bad stuff. But this one guy said to me, and this is the real, like, I just grew up moment, was he said, look, kid, come back when you can draw exactly like Jim Lee. He's like, because no, nothing else sells. Jim Lee sells, and if you could draw exactly like Jim Lee, then I'm interested. And he was like a rinky dink. That's a pub. broken
0: dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like when he laid it out
1: that cynically to yeah. me, I was like, wow, is that really what comics are? You know?
0: That's rough. That's a broke That's a broken man. I mean, that's like.
1: And was he an editor? He was just another artist. He was he was an independent publisher. Yeah. I mean, because remember, this was like 93. So like there was a zillion independent sure. coalition studios, organization, press syndicate, <laughs> ask me about job opportunities. That was going on at the time. So it, it was that at that moment that I realized, well, maybe what I want to do is I've had this story since I was in high school and I really like these characters. Maybe I should just like float that around and do some mini comics. And that's I started self-publishing when I was 19. And when I say self-publishing, that only means that I paid for printed books that I solicited in previews and nobody
0: bought. So oh, so you you were in previews. You did the whole I went the whole through Megillah.
1: And this was before previews was exclusive, right? So, like, there were a bunch of other smaller distribution channels. I forget the names of them offhand. But Capital City. That might have been one of them. There was another one that had, like, a guy's name was, like, Tom's Comics Distribution. Okay. <laughs> there was, like, a whole bunch that I solicited in. And, yeah, I was in previews for the, the one month. And then I saw what the logistics and the finances were behind self publishing that way when you're doing like a crappy black and white book on newsprint. And I realized, oh, maybe there's another better way to do that. So that's when I started doing everything through the mail. I was doing like mailing people books and so people doing order- zines. Doing basically zines. Yeah, zine versions of my book. I did that until I got onto Antarctic Press's radar. And then I started doing some freelance work for them.
0: So you're, you're doing stuff at Antarctic Press. Are you still thinking, like, all right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to send this, and I'm going to get on Spider-Man at some point? Or is there a certain point where you go, like, you know what, this is awesome, and if I never draw Spider-Man, it's fine? Or do you still want to draw Spider-Man? Well, no, actually, I did some freelance work last
1: year on the Marvel Superhero Squad cards. Okay. And and I got to draw Spider-Man on a card, and I got a check. And I felt like, okay, bucket list. That was <laughs> off the list. I don't have to do it now. And now I don't have to. In, like, the thing I was saying was like millions of kids are seeing these cards. You know, it's like I'm probably getting more circulation through this than the book is to kids. And that's the audience I want. So to go back to your initial question, it was around 1997, 1998 when I was working for Arctic Press that I realized I really, really want to do books for kids. And in 98, we saw where things were going with superhero comics, and then that was when I had that first, like, looking in the mirror, like, dude, you're probably not going to draw Spider-Man. Not because you're not good enough, somebody might say so, but it was a recognition that this is the moment where I realized that that can't be part of the equation. If the ultimate goal, if the solution to the problem is making comics that kids really love, I can't put Spider-Man in there, I'll have to do something else. So... Yeah, the dream shifted at that point, and then it turned into I want to do my own graphic novels and possibly do, like, licensed property comics, like what you do, because yeah. I, you are living the dream that I had at that point. You know, it's like I'd love to draw a beloved children's character, and it doesn't matter if they know who I am. I just want to make stories that make kids laugh, and they'll say, remember that one story when such and such happened. That's all I right. want
0: now. Well, if you're enough of an egomaniac, at a certain point you go, "This isn't enough. <laughs> Somebody needs to know who I am." for cry you, out you loud, yourself all, you, know, you create your own stuff, yes. right? And then it's a matter of balancing that time. Yeah, but no, I look, I I've drawn Batman in the animated style, but I've yeah. drawn Batman. So that's the coolest. Yeah, yeah, it's the best. And you know, he's he's Batman.
1: It's like at the end of the Karate Kid movie. He doesn't need to go to that final battle with Johnny. He made his point. He, he fought through up to the point. He doesn't need the trophy at the
0: end. You get the satisfaction of doing the, the hero act of I drawing Batman. just watched a clip yesterday. Not a clip. I watched a stand-up special of a guy named Gary Gullman. Mm-hmm. who talks about the end of the Karate Kid. It's great. So going back to what you were saying, the, the characters that you started working on on your own, were those Jared and Orange Guy? No, no, they weren't. They came along later.
1: So this is, okay, now you're touching on something that I'm really wrestling with in this particular moment in time in my career, life, whatever you want to call it. The original idea was very image-inspired 90s superhero stuff, you know, lots of pouches. Sure. And uh, everybody had a code name, and they all wore costumes. And, and I was going to show how superheroes could be kind of real and gritty, you know, like what everybody was doing at the time. But then when it came to, and that's those are the mini comics I was doing in the '90s. But then around '97, '98, when I realized, you know, that's not what I'm, what I really enjoy. What I really enjoy is kid stuff. I started thinking about redoing that idea and make it accessible to kids, and write it as the coming of age story, the classic Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. You're alone and special. Here comes an old guy who says, "Hey, guess what? This is how old." alone and special you are, and there's this evil guy who's going to try to capture you because of your aloneness and specialness. This is the front. This is the front, yeah. yeah. And as I was writing it, I sat down and said, well, I want my wife to read this, and my wife has a thing for Abominable Snowmen. <laughs> And and what's funny is, is there was this one night in 1998 I was, I was deadlining a book for Antarctic and I was working a day job that I really hated and I wasn't getting much sleep and I was prematurely aging and my wife saw me sit, sitting at that desk prematurely aging and so she did this sketch of an abominable snowman wearing pants and it said yo dudes guess what I saw a naked lady once and it was just <laughs> it was just to make me laugh it was just to like brighten up buddy you know it's okay you're making comics after all. And I I still have it. I hung on to it because it meant so much to me that it was this cute little, like she knew right when I needed to laugh. And so when I came to doing the front again, I was like, I'm going to put that guy in there as a love note to my wife. Like, thanks, sweetheart, for doing this thing for me. And what's funny is he became the most popular character in the book amongst the when I was serializing it online when it had a readership people really responded positively to him. An orange guy was just to create a partner for him. Uh, I just wanted a partner for this big monster and I thought, well, wouldn't it be funny? I had this like um He-Man knockoff character it with the, which can't move. You can't move his legs. He's like all molded on one piece of plastic and he looked a lot like that. He's just this orange devil guy that I've just always loved looking at. It just makes me laugh. So, I thought, well, what if I just turned him into a character and
0: he only spoke in rogs kind of like that character from chowder yeah chowder was great <laughs> you know having read the front you could tell that those characters have a certain just by the way you're writing them that they're, there's there's they're obviously in there for a reason mm-hmm. they're the heavies but they're cartoon heavies right Yeah. which, which brings me to the next larger question point whatever uh, you are from your work and from hearing on your podcast it's it seems to me that you are more than a, a child of Saturday morning and afternoon cartoons you you are a devourer and devotee of that <laughs> of that ilk yeah
1: I love that stuff
0: like I feel like almost more than comics like I feel like you you love comics as a medium as a mm-hmm. method for telling stories but in terms of content and style and yeah and the kind of material that you are drawn to and want to create it's it's in that frame of mind would yep. that be accurate
1: oh I, yeah, I think that's fair to say yeah, I love comics first and foremost, but in terms of like what kind of stories I want to tell, I always think of the stuff that's produced for that age range and in those kinds of uh, contexts.
0: Right? I mean, I remember hearing you on one of, I think it was Art and Story, you were talking to your two co-hosts, and you were going, and this must have been a year and a half, maybe two years ago, you were going on this. I wouldn't call it a rant, but you were really singing the praises of this new show called My Little Pony: Friendship, Friendship Is, is magic. magic. Yeah, and I'm listening to you talk about this. I'm like. And I go, I got to watch this show. Like, I got to see what, because you were selling it, not selling it hard, but you were you were hitting these points. They made me go, there's something to this show. Now it's obviously a, a, a thing.
1: Yeah, the brony thing, which yeah. we won't talk about. It's fine. I mean, yeah.
0: people, can, people can express their fandom in any way they sure. want. As long as nobody's getting hurt, yeah. it's cool. <laughs> but just the way you talk about these things, it speaks to, again, more than just a fandom, a, a real appreciation for that kind of storytelling. That I think a lot of people would just as soon not recognize yeah. or care about. This is, a,
1: this is a pain point for me. I mean, I, I hear... I hit,
0: the, I hit all the pain. I'm like an acupuncturist. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's your chief.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, like, whenever somebody finds out how much I love this stuff, they're like, you know what? I watched, insert cartoon name here, mm, doesn't hold up. And I always, oh, it just makes my eyes roll. I'm like, what do you mean it doesn't hold up? What are you comparing it to? Do you compare, you know, the pokey little puppy to Tolstoy and then say it doesn't hold up because where's the pathos in the pokey little puppy? You know, it's different things, and it's meant for different audiences, and I just happen to be fascinated by the structure and tricks and style and aesthetic of this particular kind of entertainment for this particular kind of audience. And I do think there's an art to it. I think partially it is, you know, as we talked about on the Kids' Comics Revolution show, sometimes just about doing something that's cool. Like laser eyes are cool. Let's just do that. But I also think that it can be artfully done, and I think that these writers of these series were not fooling around when they did it right. You know, some of these guys really knew what they were doing.
0: Well, there's, you know, there's, there's a regular argument amongst animation people especially that cartoons of a certain era, say from, I don't know, 81 to 92, yeah. are all terrible. That's, uh, again, I'm not saying that. I'm sure. saying that's the attitude from animation people especially. Like That's an era of animation. Is it because
1: of the quality? Is that their argument? It's the
0: quality. It's that the regulations from TV and all. Everything yeah. became a commercial for a toy because you couldn't have commercials during the show. So sure. you know, the argument against G.I. Joe is it was a 22-minute th- commercial for action.
1: Absolutely theaters. it was.
0: But obviously we were watching it as kids, and you are completely drawn into this world. Yeah. And the characters take on... A life that you're just like, yes, shipwreck. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He's so cool. And mm-hmm. yes, you watch it as an adult, and it's idiotic. Mm-hmm. As an adult, sure. I mean, I, I... It breaks down when you take it literally. Of course. I mean, I remember watching, as an adult, G.I. Joe the movie. Yeah. Which is awesome. Oh, God, it's so good. But there's a part at the end where... Is it, is it Hawk or Duke that gets shot? Somebody oh, gets shot? Oh,
1: okay. You know the story behind this, right? Duke, Duke, quote-unquote... He goes into a coma.
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah. So he he, he goes into a coma, but the way it plays out is all the Joes run around him, and then the doc, the medic, comes yeah. up and without touching him, yeah. says he's in a coma, <laughs> which is obviously you know you can't kill him. It's a Saturday morning cartoon. They don't want right. him to be dead. Yeah. But that whole sequence, when I watched it as an adult, I thought this is this is clown time. Yeah. But I'm certain <laughs> that when I was the age that that came out and I watched it, I think it was serialized on TV. Yes, it was. It was nuts.
1: Oh, oh yeah. No, it was. this was high drama. Yeah. You know, I, I watched it on videotape. My parents... Thank God, I uh, had a video store when I was a little kid. And so, like, I got to see this stuff right when it came out, you know, because it was direct to video and then later on serialized on TV. It was originally meant to be played in theaters, and Transformers movie came out, and you know what they did to Optimus Prime in that. And there was such a backlash. So intense. That was so intense. Oh, w- when Starscream disintegrates, I-, I literally stood up in my seat and was like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> it was like if, if the expression was around at the time, I would have said, oh no, you didn't. But it was like that moment for me when Starscream disintegrated. So, when, when G- they were working on G.I. Joe, the movie, there was such a backlash over Killing Prime that they said, even though the scene was already animated, like we can't kill Duke. So the, you'll notice when they pan down, they, they say he's in a coma. You don't see anybody's mouth moving. And then when Hawk puts his hand on Falcon's shoulder and says, don't worry, we'll do everything we can for Duke. And then he says, yo, Joe, and cries. Uh, <laughs> that's the only time you see his mouth move. And then at the end, Doc just comes in over the radio and says, hey, great news. Duke came out of his coma. And then everybody's cheering. Yeah. And then it cuts to Falcon and Jinx on the top of this cliff, and they're like, oh, look, the last the mutation spores are burning up in orbit. Falcon looks at the sky and says, thanks, big brother, his big brother, who was Duke. Why would he say thanks, big brother, to the <laughs> sky if Duke was still alive, right? So, like, it's clear. It's clear that he was meant to die, but they took that part out in order to, uh, you know, placate or pre-placate any angry parents who think that their ch- children shouldn't understand that things die. That's awesome. <laughs> but it speaks to the aesthetic of that stuff. Which I think is great. It's, it's an awesome creative limitation, right? Yeah. How do you write a really good story where you can't show somebody die? You have to find drama elsewhere. And this is all writing. All writing is working within limitations. You
0: can't just say to somebody,
1: you're free to do whatever you want because it will be a mess. All the best stories work within some kind of parameters.
0: Well, I always like to point out that people love, especially in modern comics, that death is the thing that is the big, the be-all end-all. Yeah. But if you look at something as simple as Superman and Kryptonite, you can create the same kind of tension without killing anybody. Mm-hmm. Or this does involve somebody dying, uh, and I've invoked it before, but water and the Wicked Witch. Mm-hmm. It's so simple. It's not a gun. It's not It's not a weapon. It's water. It's everything. And everywhere. she's not
1: dying. She's melting. She is melting.
0: That's right? true. You know, what so a you, world. What a world. If
1: you're Ned Flanders, <laughs> you get to turn and say, well, she just melted through the floor, and now she's in the bathtub downstairs, <laughs> and she's eating ice cream. You, know, you can come up with some kind of workaround if you're that worried about it. Right but but it's creative solutions yeah
0: it's yeah it's, yeah, it's, it's being a creative person and, and working around and for an audience working to, for an audience instead of you know not to dispute because i agree with you, you want to write something for yourself and something that you would enjoy but there's something to writing something that you as a child would enjoy absolutely that i think a lot of people lose sight of when they're writing the things they loved as a child Does that makes sense
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't want to write something for my eight year old self where I'm going to like, all right, brace yourself, kid, because here comes the facts of life. <laughs> right. It's like when, when you're 20, this bad thing's going to happen and that's going to suck. And I'm here to tell you that it's time you wake up and put away childish things. Right. You know you want to write something that that they 're developmentally ready for there 's also development to consider you know it 's like oh I, I, I once did an anthology called Sugary Cereals, and I remember getting into a lot of discussions with different creators as I wanted them to get involved i 'm like well here 's like the format here 's the structure here 's the feel we 're going for and one guy says, "Well, oh, I can dumb my stuff down." It's like, no, nope, you're out. That does that that is not what we're talking about here. It's not about me, here's a yo-yo. You know, don't put it in on your head. You use it like this, right? You write what they are developmentally and conceptually ready for. And you can deal with that heavy duty stuff, but you gotta deal with it in a way that they're ready for. And I think there's that's what creativity is, is solving those problems and communicating those ideas within those constraints.
0: You know, it's a it's a very mature thing at seventeen or eighteen to realize that you want to create entertainment for children.
1: Well, actually it was more like 1920-21 20, in Even that there, neighborhood.
0: Yeah. I, mean, I, I know that certainly when I was in high school, 17-18, I was coming up with ideas that I see them now and I go, Ugh, yeah. I don't know about that. <laughs> was there something in that, you know, in your college days that you saw or recognized that made you go, that's the audience I want to write for. This is and and what was that thing?
1: Well, I mean, th- Part of it is is that I was an unforgivable dork about this stuff. When I was a teenager, I was still really, really into Transformers. I was working on developing a Palladium module that would work with a Transformers backstory. So like, oh, we can roleplay Palladium, but we can play Transformers. And here's how the rule sets would work. And I was designing my own Transformers still. And when I worked at my parents' video store, Transformers the movie was on constant uh, rotation to the point where uh, a customer came in once and said, you know, every time I come in here, that movie is on the screen. It must be good. Tell me about it. And he checked it out that night. you know. So it it survived well into my adulthood. I mean, there was no transition where I was like, "Ah, I'm going to put away these dumb things and grow up. So when I I was fortunate, and then I have a friend who has been my friend for 20-odd years now. And we talk on the phone once a week. And what do we talk about? We talk about Transformers. For 20 years, we've been talking on the phone once a week about Transformers to this day. And over that time, it was, it started out with being the whole, like, doing the adult kind of retconning of, like, well, you know, today's topic of debate, is Starscream the greatest Decepticon patriot or the greatest Decepticon traitor? And what's your evidence, right? And having these dumb, nerdy discussions became, like, sort of like a master's course in deconstructing and evaluating what made these cartoons work and what didn't work. So by the time I was 22 and I was spent a couple of years talking on the phone with this guy I realized what it was I had gotten to the nut of what made these these shows work for me and when I got that I was like that's what I want to do I I figured out I cracked the code of this particular thing and that that's why it made me so happy that's what I want to replicate and that's what, how I want to I want to make cartoons for that little kid like me who you know found not that I had a troubled childhood, but I found like kids do—you find solace in this stuff, yeah. right? You feel An alone, yeah. You think of like, boy, wouldn't it be great if Bumblebee was sitting here right next to me? I could tell him all about my day, you know. Uh, I wanted to do that for kids, so I don't, I don't know if it was maturity as much as it was immaturity, right? I couldn't let go of that stuff.
0: I guess I guess I see it as as uh, selfless, which oh. to me is a mature idea. Instead of wanting to make something for yourself that you think is cool, you're making something for a past version of yourself, or a kid coming up in the world. That's the hope, yeah. And that—that that is a, a, a much more mature idea than, hmm. Batman should uh, kill people, because <laughs> I think that would be cooler. That's a selfish, uh, I mean... I'll agree. You know what I mean? That's self-indulgent, right? It's, it's very like, self-indulgent. Here's
1: my... You think you know Batman? You don't know Jack, buddy, because here's my Batman.
0: And it completely disrespects the legacy of... The character that came before. If you're if you're willing to go in there, and some people can do it well, but if you're willing to go in there and as as the people love to say now, break the toys. Yeah. You're breaking somebody's toys.
1: Everybody should sit down across the table from you and talk with you because (laughs) this is this is great. You've just validated everything that I've ever felt really strongly about. It's like like I got into an argument with one guy once about how about sacred cows, you know? Because like you know, I, I have friends who worked on the Robot Chicken show, and I think sometimes that show. Goes too far, and yeah, it's funny. Skeletor farted.
0: Wow, that's really great. But <laughs> that's but going right at your little well, of He-Man. <laughs> <You can't> <laughs> I, I mean. love
1: He-Man, and and uh, I think that some some things sh- like it, it's it's kind of like making fun of Mister Rogers, you know. And I know that that's been done too. It was, what was it? The J- Jim Carrey skit where he did like the send up of Mister Rogers?
0: Andy Murphy famously did. Sure. Oh yeah
1: yeah. And, and it's like I think that sometimes that that's kind of tacky when you have somebody who just wants to make kids feel good about themselves and make them, make kids happy and attack them at that. Right. I, I think that's kind of dirty pool. But also I think that there's a, a context that those kinds of stories work and there's a context where they don't. And I think like saying like, oh, I'm going to do He-Man, but it's going to be real. I think that breaks the toys because you're ultimately talking about a guy with furry underpants called He-Man. You know, there's already uh, an explicit silliness about the idea that's meant for eight-year-olds, and it's not meant for us. Like, I can love He-Man now as an adult, but don't make the He-Man that's supposed to, like, like reconcile my adulthood with my childhood by making him chop people's heads off and stuff.
0: Or or you do it in in a capacity where it's an analog, yeah. where it's, it's Watchmen or, you know, Robert Kirkman does Invincible, which isn't, yeah. you know, you can read that as a teenager, but it's yeah. taking the superior archetype and pushing it further without breaking what came before it's saying right. he's building on the shoulders of giants i guess sure the yeah or, I'll, or I'll eric that. larson savage dragon or any of the image guys that went off and did their thing it was them doing their thing it wasn't saying i'm going to turn what i was working on to this does that make sense yeah it makes yeah, sense. yeah i know it be. makes sense <laughs> Savage uh,
1: Dragon is a good example of somebody who's writing for his younger self right
0: yeah although i don't know if that is it is that a book that would you'd say is for a young reader or a teenage uh, reader?
1: Yeah, a teenage reader. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, he's writing for his teenage self. You could yeah. tell, yeah, right? Yeah. It's and all, it, it's clear. Yeah, and that's what makes it so wonderful. You yeah. know, so in a way, it's selfish, but in a way, it's selfless because it's it's recapturing the magic for a new generation.
0: Any, any act of creation is a little bit selfish. Yeah, when you're of putting your name on the thing. You're like,
1: yeah. Hey, an act of creation is you saying, "Let me show you." Yeah. Right,
0: and you, if you can't own up to look that, look what then, I did. Yeah, look what I did. I love that. <laughs> look that's what my I <laughs> You've cited Crisis on Infinite Earths number three yep. as the as the the work that that shined the light.
1: Like I loved comics before that, but that was the moment.
0: the The line I heard you say was, "You can remember smells from when you read that comic." Uh huh. What the heck? A- I've never read Crisis all the way through. Okay. What happened in that issue that did it? What was the what was the magic bean?
1: It was it was something where it was the excitement of what was happening on the page. It was George Perez's uh, image density. You know, I'm still chasing that as an adult. You know, w- working in comics, it was the fact that I was skimming across what was clearly a very deep pool. Right, because the crisis, like everybody gets a cameo. Hawk and Dove show up for one panel. Question shows up for one panel. Blue Beetle shows up for one panel. And I'm reading this as, you know, a ten year old going like, "Who are these guys? They all look different. They all look cool." Peacemaker, what's his deal? You know, but there was clearly that these guys all knew each other for a long time. So I felt like I was just getting introduced into this huge, huge world. It was beautifully done. It was so exciting. I mean, I and I'm, the, the story I love to tell is I put the book down and I remember almost feeling out of breath. Like, my heart was racing. I was like, oh, my God. that was amazing. And, yeah, I remember the smell of the paper. I remember that, that the windows were open. It was a summer night, and there was, like, a gentle breeze coming in. I remember the smell of, like, the cornfield off of the distance that, you know, uh, I, f- I forget Farmer Schaefer, I think was his name, was growing <laughs> was growing corn that summer. Uh, and they were they were pretty – they're still pretty short because it was the middle of the summer. It wasn't quite autumn yet, so they weren't full size. But, yeah, I can remember – like, it was an electric moment, and I put it down, I was like – and I said it out loud to no one, I'm going to draw comics someday. I hesitated – I, I tell that story a lot, but I always feel weird about telling it because it sounds so manufactured. It sounds so phony, like, oh, I was predestined. Look at my career. You will see I was not predestined. <laughs> if I was predestined, I would have an Eisner right now. I would be making a lot of money doing it. I felt a sense of predestination, which ultimately I've had to fight for for a long time.
0: Did Did you find with that sense of predestination, because I, I decided at 11 that I wanted to, yeah. to make comics, uh, and I think I pursued that. To the To the exclusion of a lot of other stuff. Like, yeah. you know, I'd come home and I would just draw. Yeah. And, you know, you read comics and you draw. Do you think on some d- – did you do the same thing? And as a result, do you think, like, Ugh, maybe I uh... – and, and Because because neither of us has one Eisner's and neither of us is uh, doing the thing that we maybe wanted to do when we were 11. Like, mm-hmm. I have not gotten to do my – Two year plus run of Power Pack where I'm writing and drawing it.
1: Oh, that uh, would be so awesome. That gets my full endorsement.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. But put, put you on that book with Jacob. Oh, my gosh. It's not, not going to happen. So, yeah. But thank you. <laughs> In hindsight, I go, well, I'm not doing that. Did I, did I, did I like, did I screw I should, up along the way? Like maybe I should have just been a little more well rounded as, mm. as, a, as a young, not even a young kid. I mean, at this point, I was a teenager. So people mm. are running around doing teenage stuff. Yeah. And I'm, you know, reading and drawing and memorizing costumes. One of my favorite
1: stories to tell is I got kicked out of the car by the girl I was dating because I was so. Enraptured with a recent issue of Spider-Man and I was talking about it not just about like oh the art was cool but like you know I don't know where they're going with this storyline and if they head in this direction I think it's going to be like this if they head in that direction it's going to be like that and why did they have to bring the black costume back anyway she's like get out
0: you already lose because there was a girl you were dating <laughs> I know
1: <laughs> I, I, magically I, she, was, she was trying to make her dad mad you know and, and so she kicked me out of the car and the, you know, my reaction was Hmm, oh, that kind of sucks oh well I'll go home and I'll work on comics <laughs> so yeah you know there was like an exclusion that happens when you when you get gripped by something. Yeah, you're so focused. Oh, I haven't had time to sit down and, or I haven't taken the time to sit down and think, have I frittered away things that I should have focused on more? I think about things like, should I focus more about on illustration or writing? I mean, I came kicking and screaming into just doing all the stuff myself. I used to think of myself like we did back then. I'm a penciler. He's right. an inker. He's a colorist, you know? And so for a long time, I was like, I, I, I don't ink. Oh, I just don't touch that stuff. So, like, I think back, and I'm like, well, if I would have gone to a proper illustration school, I probably would have been exposed to that stuff, and I'd probably be better at drawing now than I would be. But at the same time, you know, it's like, it's I like, think about the thing, like, Scott Young, like, what if this is as good as it gets, and you can't, you can't rewrite it so you might as well try to find the best of your biography and focus on that and and learn to like what you what you come out as and then and focus on punctuating that more and and pushing in that direction more At least like what i'm trying to do
0: yeah to be fair i don't wallow away (laughs) what did i do like i'm fairly content with with what i'm doing yeah
1: you seem like a pretty uh, well-adjusted guy i I
0: have a very good poker face (laughs) Your career has taken you in many you know for somebody who wanted to be a penciler Mm -hmm. you have moved on to do a great many things that that whether people recognize it or not or notice it you're still doing it and you're you're affecting people with the stuff you do particularly your your work as a teacher and advocate and your work in michigan specifically in ann arbor i mean even before we get to the podcasts you teach courses you do school visits you do all these things which ties perfectly into you wanting to make entertainment for young people you now want to teach young people how to make entertainment mm-hmm. was that something that that you kind of fell into at a certain point i
1: totally fell into it okay.
0: total i mean i when i
1: lived i lived in arizona from 2000, 2000, or 1999 to 2004 and i remember i got approached by the phoenix public library to do a comics workshop
0: now how did they know who you were
1: my wife worked there, okay. you know, so like, and I was working for an Arctic press. And so she was, you know, showing off some of my books to her coworkers okay. Okay. and they were like, Oh, we should get him in here and do a workshop. Now I lived about a mile away from Todd McFarlane at that time. You know, I would w- run into him at stores, not that he would ever high five me, but I was like, Hey, there's Todd McFarlane. And I could hear him. Oh, Wanda. But uh, when he approached me, I was like, I'm not Todd McFarlane. I got no business telling anybody how to do what I do. I don't even know what I'm doing. And I turned him down flat. I'm like, no way. I'm not teaching for you guys. I'm not qualified. And my wife Ann at the time was like, "Well, you know, it'd be a great way to make extra money, and maybe you could like branch out into doing talks and teaching and stuff." I'm like, "No, I am so not the person for that job." Fast forward to 2006, a friend of mine showed me a listing. Oh, so my freelance work dried up. I had a art agency abscond with thousands of dollars worth of work of mine that they didn't pay me for. You know, it's like the guy literally like just disappeared and fled the country kind of thing. And like, he left a lot of people high and dry. So I I was in this really bad financial situation. So I was taking up just part-time work because I, uh, anyway, we've been there where freelance work is for whatever reason has dried up. And so somebody sent me this listing. Um, uh, this group in Detroit wanted artists to visit 10 different Detroit public schools to talk about comics, and they would be working in conjunction with this educational program, which would—it well, was going to hopefully reveal that reading comics boosts key reading comprehension skills. That was the goal of the study, and they needed a cartoonist to do the teaching. And so I thought, well, you know, I, I don't want to do this, this stuff, and at least this is comics. And then I went— and I found out more about the program, and I found out how much they were going to pay me. And I was like, okay, this sounds great, you know. And it turned out that I, I was a big nerd about comics, and I, was, uh, I, I loved talking about them with my friends. And when I got in an environment full of teachers, they responded very positively to the way my approach to talking about the subject. And then it turned out that I wound up, according to my boss, being a natural working with kids.
0: Which shouldn't be surprising.
1: I don't have kids. That's the weird part.
0: You're in touch with it. Yeah. I remember what what it's like. I remember what their worldview is.
1: Yeah, I guess so. And so I wound up really enjoying the job. I wound up feeling like I was doing a good job, and I was working in schools where there was no art program. I mean, these kids never had art. And some of these kids said to me, you know, some of these kids were terrif we're talking about third graders who were terrified to draw because they were worried about getting it wrong. Yeah. You know, and I got to be I got to intervene and say, No, 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 no. There's no right or wrong way to draw. And I watched this kid who was crying a moment ago suddenly taking their first tentative steps drawing. And uh, you know, the, the you know, I had like this great um Dead Poet Society moment where I walked into a room full of fifth grade and they stood on their desks and gave me a round of applause, like a screaming round of applause because they loved me that much because I was such a breath of fresh air compared to what their, you know, core curriculum was. So it was a really positive experience. And so I thought I said, well, gosh, I made a difference in all these kids lives. You know, I, I, I taught like a thousand kids over that course of that term. So I'd like to do more of that, and plus the money's not bad. It'd be a great way to subsidize my income as a cartoonist, and make a difference, and hopefully get more kids interested in comics, thereby getting them to buy comics, thereby giving all of us a chance to make money at comics. Yeah. You know, I was looking at it as a, as like a ten-year thing, right? So, yeah, I I completely fell into it just because I was I needed money, and and it and I found myself in the right place and right time, and found out that I was good at something that I didn't think I was.
0: You know, in in the as you were saying, you know, as a kid, you think it's pencil or inker, this, that, and the other, and you you never even until you realize it, you don't realize there's a lot of ways to do comics yeah. without doing mainstream comics. Yeah. You know, it's it takes a while to learn that there's independent press and there's places you can go and draw superheroes even without it being panel to panel superheroes. Like mm-hmm. if that's your if that's your get your game, mm-hmm. there's plenty of you know somebody's got to draw a coloring book. Mm -hmm. and Todd McFarland's not going to do it.
1: Right, and I'll take that money yeah, happily. They usually
0: pay pretty much better, actually. Actually, yeah. If you're comparing page rates and... If you're comparing page rates and time spent, yeah, absolutely,
1: it's way better money. I've done a coloring book or two before, and yeah, it's really good money, and then I get to say, hey, I drew this particular character. Yeah, and And
0: and it certainly sees a wider audience, and... It's everywhere.
1: I I know, I know that sounds like I'm justifying or retconning, but it, I really do feel that way. Like when I did that Spider-Man card, I really felt like that sense of relief. Like, okay, 17 year old Jersey who's yelling at me
0: from the distance, I did the thing. Shut up. Now okay. I get to move on and do other stuff. If you know, you can apologize for justifying it, but if we don't, if you don't justify, it, you're going to be miserable. Yeah, true. I mean, we're all we all want something. Yeah. Right. You always, even if you've achieved a the thing, then you want that next thing.
1: But don't you think, like, part of what growing up is is discovering that the thing you think you wanted isn't what you really wanted after all, and it's something else. I mean, maybe that's Mr. Holland's opus. I hope it's not. But I think that, you know, a lot of things that... Because when you're, when you're setting that goal for yourself, you don't even know what life is like yet. You've only been around for 16 years or so. You had no concept of what kind of, what real opportunities are out there. You just have this picture in your head. Like, for instance, when I was a kid in, I didn't get to go to Comic-Cons very much because I grew up in a really rural area, I had this picture that George Perez was the picture of God from the top of the Sistine Chapel, right? This big, flowing white hair, <laughs> and he'd have this big, booming voice, like the guy in Star Trek V, like the big, floating head of God kind of thing. And then I met him, you know? And then it's like, oh, you're not like that at all. You're just like a dude dude you know and yeah. you're like this really really cool dude but you're just a dude you don't have that concept you don't have that worldview when you're that age so it only makes sense that as you mature it's not about like accepting the cold facts of life like my parents used to say welcome to the real world kid taxes and whatever <laughs> but it's like you learn that oh the thing i wanted i had this this dressing on it but let's get to the nut of what i really wanted
0: well i think it goes to you and your friend talking about transformers and, yeah. and breaking it apart to the point where you realize this is this the is essence. Me, it's not the yeah. transformers it's yeah, It's what the Transformers did for me it's not emotionally. The, yeah, it's and not the mentally. noise. It's yeah. not Optimus
1: Prime. It's not robots. It's w- all that stuff at the core of it that those things are expressions of, right?
0: Yeah, and, and I think to a certain degree, you, know, you start reading comics, superhero comics, and then you fall in love with the medium of storytelling of comics. And you go, oh, I don't have to tell a superhero story, which I think a lot of people reach that point where you mm-hmm. go, and maybe it's out of necessity where I will never get to do Spider-Man because, you know, every year six people get to do spider-man yeah so you go i'll do something else and you find your you find your voice yeah. same way that any creative person find whether it's a comedian or a chef or a writer or an artist or you find your voice and you start creating things that come from you to speak to your experience or lack yeah. of experience as the case <laughs> may be <laughs>
1: On the topic of voice thing, that's the thing I'm struggling with right now is what is my voice? And I've always had a sense of it. I've always had like a crude definition of it. But like, and let me ask you, as somebody who's been doing this a long time and and professionally, do you have like a one sentence thing that describes what your voice is?
0: No. It's tough. And I think part part of the problem with me is, and it's also the way I draw, is I draw two different styles. So I draw SpongeBob to look like SpongeBob, and then I draw my stuff to look a certain way. And even that changes depending on the story I'm telling. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to uh, my friend Chris Jeruso, who draws the way he draws, and and doesn't deviate from that. Thankfully, he's really good at it, and you know, has his he has a voice. It's very clear. It's very distinct. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have different voices depending on what I want to do, and and that's it's it's a blessing in that I can be malleable. It's a curse in that I can't sell myself in a sing in one line. Yeah. Uh. And and.
1: So you're a character actor, yeah. yeah. I guess so. Yeah, you're I the Paul Giamatti of comics. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess but in some ways, it's, it's um, what's what's the there's the expression is um journeyman. Yeah. Which I don't really quite understand, but it's you know I it's more to a certain degree it's more craft mm-hmm. than art, where I can I can deliver a product, which is a little frustrating sometimes because I want to create things, mm-hmm. but it's finding that balance yeah uh so no i cannot i cannot say what my voice is in one line because i can i can be horribly crude and disgusting and and I could also write things for children that are sweet and and very charming yeah and and those two things do not that Venn diagram does not cross over. <laughs>
1: I wish it would more though. I wish more people would accept that because like whenever there's like some scandal about some person who's involved in kids stuff and then you find out something like, you know, the skeleton in the closet kind of thing, people are like, oh, it's always the people who do the kids stuff who are weirdos, you know? Yeah. And if more people could understand that, no, no, we're grown men. And all that that implies, you know, it's like we 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 like other things beyond this stuff, but we happen to like this stuff too. Uh, we wouldn't be dealing with that quite so much. Which
0: is for a year, I was doing a comic once a month. I'd put out a one-panel comic called Grown Up Pinocchio, mm-hmm. and it was, I mean, it's, it was misogynistic. It was terrible. I mean, it's a terrible character. He's a mean. He was basically like Andrew Dice Clay and Dennis Leary smooshed together. Like that's what he was. And I would send these out in emails to people, and and people were loving it. Yeah. And I kept trying to figure like, how do I get this out into the world? And friends of mine, because we were also doing kids stuff, would say like, do you really want to have these two things? And in terms of justifying it, my justification was: Shell Silverstein did it. Yeah. Dr. Seuss did it. Roald Dahl did it. Roald Dahl did it. So, I mean, you know, Jules Feiffer did it. Mm-hmm. So. Why can't I do it?
1: I don't know why that why that stereotype exists. And uh,
0: because there are creeps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there are people that don't do it well. Yeah. You know, Shel Silverstein was famous for the kids' stuff, and he's also maybe a different era. Whatever the case may be, look, that Grown Up Pinocchio stuff is all on my website. People could see it anytime they want. Yeah. There's a button you have to click to say you're a grown up, but it's there. It's, yeah. You know, I, I can't – I still think it's funny. <laughs> I mean it's terrible But it's funny I still come up with ideas For it from time to time To the end of justifying And and, yeah. and all that There's To your teaching aspect There's the expression Those who can't teach
1: Oh yeah Love that <laughs> Makes you feel good Every day When, it's when somebody When somebody mutters that
0: and, You know really I mean <laughs> That wasn't tinged with anything <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well And I get that From two different camps I get it from the camp Of somebody who and is, let, me, let me just
0: interrupt yeah. you And say you can. I said it before. I want to just reiterate. You can. So I thank you for that. I thank you for that. No, I, for that. no I, I I get it from camps where it's it's
1: usually coming from a place. of, There's a perception, and this is something that I you know I was really surprised to find out, and I think this is what's happening is when there's a perception of when you do something well, like when I talk on my shows or when I uh, like do a workshop and it's well attended or when somebody sees my work, there's a perception uh, to some people of well he must be famous. Because this is good, right? <laughs> it's good, so he must really have, like, a million fans. And I get emails from that every once in a while, like, well, dear Mr. Droz, I'm sure your thousands of idiotic sheeple fans would disagree with me on this, but I'm here to tell you, you know? So I think part of the those who can't teach is leveled at me by that camp sometimes of the whole, well, you may be good at that, but that's at the detriment of your comics work. Ha-ha, gotcha now, you know? And then I think there's people who genuinely had bad experiences with teachers, as I did. I had some really terrible teachers. I had teachers who were trying to actively talk me out of doing comics. You know, there's uh, not that there's no future in it, but more like, well, that's not art. Art is this. And They put George O'Keefe in front of me, seventeen year old boy who wants to draw Carrion from Spider Man. Put George <laughs> O'Keefe in front of him. That's going to turn me around. You know, yeah, yeah. That wasn't paying attention to what my interests were and in, in really trying to push me in a direction to challenge myself. That was refuting me outright
0: and making me say, oh
1: yeah. And, you know, so I guess in in that way, she was a good teacher, but.
0: Well, it could have gone the other way. You could have been defeated and walked away.
1: It could have been. It could have been that. But anyway, so I think that those those are the two voices I hear in my head when somebody says that. Um, And and if it's somebody who had a bad experience with teachers, my heart goes out to them. It sucks when you have a bad teacher, but that doesn't preclude them from having any expertise. Right. Uh, So. So, yeah, I disagree with that. And I think cartoonists make awesome teachers most of the time.
0: Yeah. No, look, I, I I also disagree with it. I mean, there are some who can't and do teach. You have to bring up the cliche and just get a response. Yeah. Well, and and good teachers, that's a skill set in and of itself.
1: Sure. You know, paying attention to 30 kids in the room and trying to guide the room without punishing people, and without doing the whole, you sit in the corner, dummy, but trying to use that energy. You have to be a, to go, karate kid again. You have to be a bit of a Mr. Miyagi <laughs> and use the room's energy uh, against it. So my hat goes off to teachers even if they don't have, like, a a previous profession, even if that is their sole profession. Oh, God bless you, teachers.
0: (laughs) And then in terms of teaching and in terms of reaching out, in terms of your advocacy, uh, you do the podcasts, Mm -hmm. plural. Mm -hmm. I do one a month. Yeah. I find it. It's not exhausting, but it is. It is way more time-consuming than I ever imagined it, it would be. It is. It's way time-consuming if you want to do a, a well-structured, organized, and research show. But you do multiple shows, yeah, and you release them. I mean, uh, you know, podcasting is like DVR for radio, so I don't always pay attention to when these things get released. But mm-hmm. it seems like you're releasing at least a show a week around that, yeah. And you were into this. You got in. You were in early because you've had shows that ran. Two years and have stopped there's the first show i heard was art and story now we four years four years yeah so if i stopped listening to that in 2010 or 11 yeah. 2011 yeah that means you started it in 2007
1: yeah i did and we had over a thousand shows that we made all total
0: so 2007 podcasting was a fairly i mean beyond fairly new it's new yeah i mean there was a handful of people doing it mm-hmm. so how did you how did you find your way there
1: it was another—I I think, like, we talked about how an act of creativity is kind of a self selfish act, at least in part. And when I first be started freelancing working from home in 2004, I discovered—you know, I, I used to listen to NPR on my way to work all the time when I had a day job. And then I started working from home, and I'm like, well, I'm going to open up this iTunes thing. There's this thing called radio stations, and I'm going to search for those word called comics. And I discovered things like fanboy radio, comic geek speak, and a lot of big ones that were around at that time, and some really obscure ones. But I remember this real, like, holy moment where talk radio for me? Talk radio about the thing that I care about most in the entire world? This is the greatest thing ever! And I, I just consumed them. I was gobbling it up like poi. And then, uh, yeah. boy, <laughs> you know, like just digging in with your fingers, like, mom, yeah, mom, okay. <laughs> <You know?
0: laughs>
1: continue <laughs> a big bowl of this stuff. And, and, uh, and so, but then after a couple years of this, I would notice, like, oh, we got Jim Salakrep on the show, or oh, we got, uh, you know, uh, John Armita Jr. on the show. And they would get him into this anecdote where he would start talking about the craft a little bit. And he's like, well, you would want to use this kind of board, not that kind of board. Or, oh, I don't do perspective stuff so much anymore because I've noticed that there's this really great trick you can do in comics. And then the interviewer would always cut him off and say, oh, we're not really interested in craft. We just want to hear the salacious stories about this particular convention. You know, who kissed who or uh, what? who fell down?
0: And not, not that they all did that. But they, what's going to happen next in in this issue? of
1: What's whatever. Wonder Woman wearing this yeah. year? That's what we really want to know. And. That's for a specific audience, but as a cartoonist, I wanted that part that they skimmed over, and I was talking with buddies on the phone all the time, as we cartoonists do, sure. and, uh, and, I, and I would be talking about, like, oh, I was really struggling with this or that on the page, and then they would try to help me and they'd say, well, if you think about nine panel grids operating this way versus three panel grids operating that way, and then we'd get into this philosophical discussion, and it would always end with us saying, geez, why don't they talk about this on the podcast that we listen to? Where is this discussion? Because this stuff is interesting. So I teamed up with a buddy of mine at the time, and we did art and story. And it, and it really – we didn't advertise it. We didn't tell anybody about it. We just said, like, hey, let's just do a, a show where we have the discussions we normally have on the phone. We'll document them. If people dig it, awesome. If nobody likes it, we're still having the discussion. you know. So it really didn't have an agenda outside of that. And it wound up getting legs. We wound up having you – know, I don't know. I don't know what podcast numbers are. I mean we had several thousand, I guess, fans. That's good. I guess. I think it's know. good. We monetized it for a while, you know we had a special supreme thing where we were giving away exclusive content to people who subscribed for ten bucks a month. And there was like a special I think ten dollar a year thing so that that's a sign of success. We made people happy, and I still to this day, when I go to con- conventions I'm like, boy, you know. I wish you were still doing podcasting jersey because Art and Story was great. And I'm like, I still have, but nobody pays attention to anything else that I do since then because that was the that was my Beatles moment, you know, and it's like, oh I loved you when you were the Beatles, but now now that you're on your own, not, not so much. This is the all things must pass
0: era for me. Now, once you started getting legs, yeah. did you think and besides monetizing, was there part of you that thought this will lead to blank, or you just thought, This is good? Were you Scotty Younging it and saying enjoy what you have or was there something to you going maybe this will turn into
1: there were two things the two opportunities that I saw once I started podcasting was a it was a means for me to get more connected into my field and when I say field I mean making friendships right and friendships can lead to jobs but that's not the reason right you do it first for friendship but also getting my name on people's radar because now I had people who worked in the industry I had Marvel and DC people I had Dark Horse people who were listening and had heard of me right so that was that was a big inroad there was people like oh I love your show oh what do you do oh I do this book oh I've heard of that book you know or I read that book or oh my gosh I'm a fan of yours you know and then the other big one was this could be a means for me to advocate for my medium because th- this is still 2007. We weren't quite where we are now in the comics industry. There was still a little bit of that residual fear from the, the 90s of comics as a medium may not be around much longer, right? Because like the, the industry is, is in so much peril with all of these different problems that I won't even go into, but it looks as if, like especially in like 1998, I remember it feeling really grim. And like, oh, I, it was grim. Yeah, and that's so when I,
0: that's when I started at Marvel. End of ninety seven. <laughs> it was grim. <laughs>
1: and so it's like it's like going through the Great Depression, right? I mean, not not a, a pure comparison, but it, it, it's an analog for that. Like when you see people come out of the Great Depression, like my grandmother, who like is a total hoarder. You know, it's yeah. like save it because you know I remember how bad that was. And so like in two thousand seven, when I saw that people were paying attention, I was like, hey, this is an opportunity for me to use a platform to say. This is why comics are so wonderful, and let's get people excited about it. And that was the one thing that I think when people respond to my presence on the show, that's what they respond most positively to is the fact that I was a big cheerleader. And I just kept saying, well, here's ten things I love about comics today. you know. Uh, and, I don't, and like I've said a million times, I don't consider myself a particularly intelligent person, but I'm an excited person, and I think that's my, like, my voice or whatever
0: if you want to call it that. There's power and enthusiasm. I think so. I, I, I'm telling you so. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, your, your advocacy via podcasting, your teaching children, your, your focus is on entertaining children. This all feeds into this, uh, this, this river delta. It mm-hmm. clearly explains your connection to Kids Read Comics mm-hmm. and the convention that you set up, not you, but you and, and your team mm-hmm. uh, set up in Michigan. Yeah. currently in Ann Arbor, but it was in a different town for the first couple we, of years.
1: We bounced ago. around. We did like uh, Chelsea, Michigan, then Dearborn, Michigan, back to Chelsea, Michigan, and now we've landed, we've roosted in Ann Arbor, Michigan.
0: So I met Dan Mishkin a few years back at, at Comic-Con uh, in San Diego, and he was pitching this show, and me being the, the hermit, selfish, sort of <laughs> lunatic, I was like, yeah, we'll see. And I still <laughs> Go have, outside, what? I, I still haven't gone, although it's on the radio, because for me it's a case of until I have a, a product, a book sure. that with my name on, it, it seems weird to to shill for SpongeBob. He doesn't need my help. Yeah, but it's it's a show that is growing, and every year it gets a little bigger. But it's a different kind of show, and I want to. I mean, I've seen photos, and it, mm-hmm. it looks it takes place in a library.
1: Yeah, it takes place in a library. Like,
0: there's no. It's not a convention center. Mm-mm. It's it's not. It's free to get in.
1: It's free to get in. That that is that is an absolute about that show. Uh, I feel very strongly about that.
0: So, so how do you – like how do you get people – like I know a lot of comic creators who won't go to a show if the show doesn't pay for mm-hmm. the flight or the hotel or some element of it. And it's a two-day show, right?
1: A two-day show, yeah. It started out one day but it became a two-day show.
0: So how do you incentivize people besides me who has his own reasons for, for staying? How do you incentivize a creator? Let's, let's take a, an example who – because I don't think Scotty has gone, right? No, not yet. All right, so Scotty does the Wizard of Oz books at Marvel. He is, for all intents and purposes, a big name in in the comics world. And, and, and I, I don't think he would take offense to us using his name in this conversation. He's, I hope not. He's yeah. a fairly public figure. Yeah. How do you incentivize somebody like Scotty who could, and I don't know this for a fact, but could go to a standard comic book show, do a bunch of sketches, rake in some cash monies, get – Adoration of fans who love his covers that he's doing for mainstream books Mm -hmm. and then uh, and then go home and and then go out drinking with with all the guys after the show, etc. Yeah. How do you incentivize somebody like that who's so keyed into mainstream comics to check out something that is so not traditional comic convention, mainstream comics?
1: You don't underestimate the power of planting a flag. That that's been one of the lessons that my last ten years of my career has taught me is that if you plant a flag and you have a clear message around it, people will respond to it. As dumb and as predestined as that sounds, we may get very. Or we try to make it very clear with Kids Read Comics that it's not about making money. Nobody's getting rich off the show. The show is free to get into. We, the organizers, are donating our time to do this. I don't make us. I lose money every year we do the show. This is a passion project. This is an effort to create a celebration for comics and for kids this is about getting kids interested in comics and providing them with the experience where so you talk about traditional shows when you go to a traditional show you go to the panel discussion and there's george Perez saying boy i love drawing saxon violence right that's a great comic i'm really enjoying it at kids read comics you get to sit at a table and draw next to george Perez, and he tells you why he does what he does and you get to try that out for yourself that's the difference you're providing that experience that uh, that that life-changing experience of letting a kid have unprecedented access to you where you are not the celebrity, you're the guest, but you are not the star with an entourage. It's very laid back and friendly, and it's kids gathering around the cartoonist to participate in the medium with them. So we hope everybody makes money. And we do have a certain budget to pay for a special guest every year. That's like, But that's our partnership with the library. That's yeah. not out of our coffers. So, like, we try to figure out, okay, who's going to be our special guest that, you know, we normally couldn't get because of distance or because of schedule or whatever. We'll try to incentivize them with that. But everybody else, we say, we'll give you a free table. You don't pay for your table. We will advertise in all the local media. We'll try to make a big deal out of our show to get people to come to spend money on you. And the Ann Arbor District Library has come on board to build this. um, They had this thing called the Summer Game, which incentivizes the summer reading program. You know, like you read five books, you get a prize. Well, they've got this game system where it's all on the website where you unlock badges and collect points by doing things on the library website. And they tied in Kids Read Comics this past year where if you visit every table in Artist Alley, you unlock a certain badge. So we had a, like a you know, a good number of kids who were ostensibly there to get their badges but hopefully also buying or getting exposed to new works as a result of it. So we try to find little tricks to also, you know, make the sales worthwhile. But ultimately what it's really about is securing the future of comics by getting kids really really excited about the medium by providing those kinds of unforgettable experiences, right? And for the most part, I think we've done a good job of using that as a curating tool for the people that come to the show. If somebody comes to the show and says, like, yeah, but I didn't make any money. Well, there's lots of shows for you to go to try that. This is a different kind of show. It's free to the public. It's free for you. Nobody pays for anything. This is a – it is a convention to the extent there's people in Artist Alley with tables selling stuff, but it's not a convention in that – there it's also like every hour there's like a hands-on workshop where kids can participate in learning about comics with creators for absolutely no money you know
0: free so it brings up two questions for me and I'm going to throw both the questions out and I'll let you oh, field yeah. them at your at your uh, discretion because I may forget the second question if we get into it mm-hmm. the first question is ignoring creators that you're trying to get to the show and incentivize them you yourself said you lose money on this thing so what incentivizes you to keep coming back it, you know i assume it's it's the warm feeling in your heart but eventually, I mean, that's a lot of work for a warm feeling. Oh, it is, it and, is. And then the follow-up question is, and, and I literally just thought of this while you were talking about it, because I know, you know, there are comic shops all over the country, and, and people who love comics and want to ensure that next generation. Is there a way to to franchise that co- what you're doing, and and train up throughout the country? Because how many people are going to be able to really make it to Ann Arbor, Michigan once yeah. a year? No, you're right. And there's kids everywhere. You're right. Uh, so those are my two questions.
1: Okay. Hit it. So, okay, it's, uh, the first one's really simple. We have organized as a, or incorporated as a 503C nonprofit okay. recently. So we're just waiting for the final bits of paperwork to go through, and then we can start accepting donations and soliciting donations. We've got some ideas for fundraisers because, yes, the first six months of every year, my life is consumed <laughs> with Kids Read Comics. You know, we're coming up on January and yeah, I know I'm looking at my calendar going, all right, here's my to do list leading up to June uh, when the next show is going to be. And I should be getting compensated for that. All of all the co-organizers should be, be being compensated for the time that we put into this show. So, yeah, that, that's something we're looking to correct on. And franchising is something we have actually actively discussed is how can we create a out of the box kit so that any library and local comic store. So any local comic store can go to their library or vice versa. And set up something like this in their area, and even where we would have you know open source artwork that they could just use, like, oh, well, we don't know how to make a flyer. Well, here is a Word document with everything set up. All you got to do is just punch in new information you're done, you know and we, we played around with this. We did an experimental run where we did the super fun tour the year before last, where I visited twenty three twenty five different libraries around the state of Michigan, and we created a press kit and said, okay, here's how to use it. Here's like the flyers you can download and, pr- and pr- print out and promote. We even got uh, files so in case you want to do like a full-on vinyl banner to hang above the library that day. Here's a bunch of digital files to use on your website. Everything's preformatted, out of the box. Here's even press releases and workshop descriptions so you can just copy and paste onto your library website or into a press release for the local paper. We even took the initiative with some libraries to contact their local papers for them. You know, it was like, here's a press release. Jersey Droz is coming to this library to do a, a one-day workshop kind of thing. And so I visit all these libraries for free, and, and in exchange for them promoting Kids Read Comics, we put on an hour-and-a-half, sometimes two-hour-long workshop for them. And it was interesting to see what kind of infrastructure behaved differently. So like different kinds of library infrastructures had the wherewithal to actively use our stuff, whereas other ones were still like, well, this... We don't have the resources even to use something that's out of the box and free. So that was our first test run of this idea, and we're still refining it. And, and, and what I'm hoping to do is in the next couple of years to come, release a, basically a, a giant zip file. You can just download off the website. And then also, like, collecting contacts from cartoonists who do teaching work to say, okay, well, if you want to have that track of free workshops, here are cartoonists who are really, really good at that, you know, who are in your area or within a short drive or something like that. So it's, it's in development.
0: It's a neat idea because I, I heard you in a different interview online talk about how, you know, part of you wants to make Ann Arbor synonymous with comics. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard other people in other cities say the same thing. I know a bunch of guys in Greensboro, North Carolina, who last year had the mayor of the town declare <laughs> the city, Comic Book City USA. That's awesome. <laughs> on Free Comic Book Day every year. From now on, that the cha- the town will be that name. And then obviously Portland is a huge comics hub. Mm-hmm. New York, for all kinds of reasons, is a, is a major comics universe. Sure. So, part of me goes: if, if people stop fighting over who's the comic book city and just make it this network, yep, there's there's a real power in that. If yeah. if it can happen, and it seems like you you have ideas and you're I got pursuing ideas. it. Yeah, we're pursuing it. So that's but good.
1: Yeah, and, and it's 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 a funding thing, it's a time thing, and it's it's a being able to bring in the right experts in thing. But we're we're getting there. To the point about naming your city Comics USA or Comic Books USA, for my part, it's not not a, a peeing contest or anything like that. What it really comes down to is I just want to send out a beacon that, are you a cartoonist? Are you moving to Michigan? well, here's one of the places in Michigan where you will find more of your people, right? right? Because it's like, it's like I hear from a lot of people when I do podcasting that like, yeah, well, that's all well and good for Jersey to do this and that, but I'm in, you know, uh, armpit Wisconsin, you know? Like, I, where do I find people, you know? It's like, well, you here here's how i've done it but but i think it's important for people to say like wave their flag of here's where the cartoonists are in this particular area not not to say like portland is better than this place or you know uh greensboro is better than that place but more to say like here's where the lights are the lights are on for you
0: you've done a, 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 at least a good enough job that we have done a podcast crossover <laughs> yeah you know uh, through your various connections and the people I know, we have come to know each other, and I think that's... The light is on, <laughs> and we're all seeing the light, and it's good. Thanks, Jersey. Oh, man, thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. I think I see the light Coming to me, coming through
1: me Giving me a second sight
0: That dude loves comics, right? I don't lie to you guys. When you when you listen to this show, I'm not lying to you. That when I set up what you're about to hear. Anyway, what would you think of that? Let me know. You can email me at stuffsaid at gmail.com. You can leave comments on the website, stuffsaidshow.com. Listen, that website, there's bonus stuff up there. There are links to the other podcasts that are part of this podcast crossover. There are links to... Jersey's websites and his other podcasts. I'm going to say podcasts over and over again. Now, go to the website, look at the bonus stuff, leave a comment. I read them. I respond to them sometimes, most of the time. All the time. You email me. I'll write you back. Honest. You can even talk to me on Twitter or follow me on Twitter at Stuff Said Show. I'm, I'm working on being more active there. You can listen to the show on iTunes. Please rate the show. Subscribe to the show. Apparently... It lets people know the show exists And then more people will listen to it You can also listen at the Acme Wave Projector At acmewaveprojector.com Which is home to A whole bunch of other podcasts Boom, I said podcast again That's about all the stuff I have to say I'll see you next week Not next week, it's next month Oh boy I gotta I think I'm gonna retire Wait, what? Hold on, Jacob is signaling me. Okay, I'm not going to retire. Jacob has Jacob has suggested I not retire. So you're stuck with me, guys. Well, oh. as long as you listen and subscribe and keep coming back. Okay. That, for real, is about all the stuff I have left to say. I'll see you next time. <laughs>